You are listening to UBC Waco Podcast. <laughs> are you recording? Yeah. Oh, okay. We can use that as just a scratch track for now. I am honored, as always, to be here with you today. And I recognize that even as we sit in here and out there, our todays are all different from one another. So whether this Sunday is for you a day of eager anticipation of what's to come, angst about what has already transpired, anger, alleluia, apathy, or amen, no matter how you've arrived, I am thankful that we are together. Now, I know for those of you who were here last time I preached, I was like, y'all, I'm feeling hopey, changey, buckle up, let optimism reign. And, you know, it occurs to me that now that perhaps that was Summer Carrie talking. <laughs> and, and she is no less Carrie than today's Carrie, but today you're getting more three weeks into the semester, Carrie. <laughs> And the working title of this sermon is something like Chores and Death. So, you know, I'm large. I contain multitudes. But the great news is I got to listen to Orna G. this week. So even despite various institutional and interpersonal distresses, I'm actually feeling quite soothed and swaddled. And for those of you who don't know, I'm referring to Orna Goralnik, the psychotherapist on the television show Couples Therapy. Orna is truly my happy place, at least as of late. I don't get to spend nearly enough time with her, but this week she was on a call-in advice podcast, so I knew that at least for those 60 minutes, I was going to be transported and transform transformed, and I was. So I want to share a little about that podcast with you all today. One of the callers seeking guidance explained her growing frustration with a friend of hers, both women were single and in their 30s, I believe. But the woman calling in wanted her friend to handle her singleness differently. She felt that her friend was overly consumed with loneliness and spent too much of her precious life desperately prepping for and attempting to find a partner. And the host of the podcast, knowing that Orna has written about feminism and patriarchy in some of her work, sort of presumed that she would agree that this woman's friend was being kind of anti-evolved or maybe anti-feminist, which I think is actually why the host chose this particular caller. But interestingly enough, these were not Orna's primary takeaways from the call. Instead, she found herself more interested in why the friend calling in could not seem to bear her friend's loneliness. Uh, which is to say, in Orna's conceptualization, her friend's otherness. What was it inside of her, Orna wondered, that so badly wanted to avoid, manage, or overcome her friend's pain, rather than simply keeping it company? She went on to suggest that when each of us find ourselves wanting to control or change or fix someone that we love, we might practice a similar curiosity. What is standing in the way of me simply bearing this otherness? This phrasing really does it for me. 
Some other scholars might say we should learn to tolerate or to accept someone's differences from ourselves, but bear feels like something we do more with our whole bodies, doesn't it? How do we hold what someone else is asking us to hold with them? And how long are we expected to hold it? And what if we can't? What if we can't even bear witness without losing our wits? It makes perfect sense to me that our own anxieties and traumas frequently manifest as requests for others to change. Most of us feel this urge with children, siblings, parents, partners, friends, and certainly foes. And today, the lectionary text brings us to people who are having trouble bearing the otherness of God. And I will admit for the millionth time to you that I have at times found God unbearable. You probably have too. Especially when God is sending us off on dangerous, confusing errands. And especially when God is saying we must take up our cross. So we'll review again some of Moses's situation this morning. Um, the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land flowing with milk and honey. I have seen how the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God on the mountain. But Moses said to God, If I come to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your ancestors has sent me, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said the famous, I am who I am. He said further, thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. And then God also said to Moses, thus you shall say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is my title for all generations. Now, I have to be honest, as an on-the-record chore hater, this feels like kind of a big ask. I feel like God sort of tries to sneak this chore in because God's like, I've seen my people's misery. I've seen their suffering. I've come to deliver them. So if you could just run to Pharaoh and let him know, it's really got a group project feel, like where one person is like, how about I get the markers and the poster board and you research and write the paper on Tertullian? And you're kind of confused because it's like, this doesn't seem fair, but we do both have two items on our list. <laughs> Moses tries to push back. He's like, oh, now what exactly do I have to do with this? Because it's like, if I'm being dead honest right now, I'm not even totally sure that I know how to say your name right. So it kind of seems like maybe you've done this whole never-ending fire, go see Pharaoh bit for the wrong person. And then there's Peter. And I just want to set this up appropriately. So before I reread the text from today, I want to remind you about the gospel reading from last week, which occurs just a few verses prior to the one from today. 
that text from last week, which, by the way, Katie Valenzuela explored so beautifully with and for us. If you weren't here, you should go back and listen. That text centers on the sort of inverse question of Moses's. Moses asks, who should I say is sending me? And last week, Jesus was asking the disciples, who do they say I am? And the disciples were giving a list of names, sort of comparison titles, Elijah, Jeremiah, etc. And then Jesus gets a bit more intimate with them, and he says, who do you all say I am? And in that moment, moments before today's text, Peter says, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus praises him for saying so. So you can imagine why Peter might be confused in this next scene. Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it. Lord, this must never happen to you. Peter rebukes Jesus. This is one of my favorite parts of scripture because I, too, am a God rebuker. I think what Peter is trying to do is help his friend live up to and into his good name, the Messiah, one who saves, one who lives, not one who suffers, not one who dies. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. For you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Then Jesus told his disciples, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their soul? Christianity and spirituality in general are often advertised to us as the end of all pain, trading sorrow for joy, death for resurrection, suffering for enlightenment. And Peter is understandably having a sort of existential crisis here. After all that, no one likes to be told that the next assignment is death. He's been led to believe that the time has finally come to overcome, to overthrow, to transcend. Not more giving in, giving up, going through. Peter was ready for salvation, not crucifixion. And Jesus is smushing the two together. So surely he must be mistaken. Surely Peter just needs to get him back on the right track. I think we are all like Peter sometimes. We are offended when there is no magic way around the work of being human or the call of being Christian. I wonder what if bearing is the answer to all this. Because bearing one another's burdens, bearing witness, bearing God's self, doesn't actually mean avoiding our pain, death, and suffering, but rather enduring, embracing, and engaging such things that we might avoid the moral injury and spiritual depravity that accompanies the numbing and the running and the suppressing and the conquering that we so often reach for instead.
I wonder how many of us vacillate between the postures of these two people in the text today. I've already said that some days I, like Peter, am overconfident about who God is and what God's plan of action ought to be. I know what it's like to find that God seems less committed than I do. And in those times, I call around like the friend on the podcast, seeking to find someone who will tell me how to make God behave differently rather than going inward. In some days, I am painfully aware how little I know about God, and I try to explain why I can't do the work of someone I don't even understand. And both of these postures can be exhausting, confusing, lonely, burdensome. But we would do well to remember the name that God tells Moses to use. Not I am who I am. That, of course, has many fascinating layers to it. And on a different Sunday, I'm sure I would have spent all of my time on that and the burning bush. But this week, I am more drawn to this last part of what God says to Moses. Moses is worried, saying, I can't go out into the world trying to fight injustice, saying the God of your ancestors, give me a real name. And God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This will be my title for all generations, which kind of first struck me as curious because isn't that virtually the same thing as saying God of your ancestors? What is the distinction here? And I didn't read this anywhere, so I won't pretend to know if it has any current theological heft, but I wonder if evoking specific names is important because to say I am the God of your ancestors is to reaffirm what is already believed that, about God, that God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, that the Lord our God is one God. But to say that God was the God of three different people from three different generations with three different stories is to suggest that God is the God of whoever God is Godding. That if God was specifically the God of Abraham and specifically the God of Isaac and specifically the God of Jacob, then perhaps God's title for all generations is not simply those three names, but rather those three names are one starting point in an ongoing list before and after of God revealing their self time and time again. So God is the God of Moses and of Peter and of Carrie and of Carolina, of Taylor and of Andy, and on and on and on. And even as God is saving us, God is sending us to tell both the oppressed and the oppressors around us that a new day is coming that we are no longer afraid to bear one another's burdens. And in fact, when we are afraid, we will let our fear remind us that even when we cannot change a person's lot, we can at least keep them company. Will you pray with me? God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Carolina, Taylor, Andy, and me, all the me's, Help us sit with, help us speak up, help us move on to the next name and expression of your love. At the conclusion of the sermon, it is our practice to engage in a moment of silence, making space for us to hear the spirit. Perhaps she will correct something I have said incorrectly. 
perhaps even now she's beginning a new thing. 